Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. So, social media. It's very easy to criticize social media from a number of perspectives due to the uh, harvesting of personal data. It's led to uh, an erosion of one's privacy and also leads to a veritable barrage of targeted uh, marketing. You know, every time you click on something on uh, any social media app, it's tabulated and then that in the future can lead to targeted marketing opportunities, but also it's intrusive and it, and it also can take advantage of people's, um, those who struggle with shopping uh, disorders as well as um, uh, it can prey on people who are lonely. Due to the scale of platforms, Facebook especially, but also Twitter and Instagram and others. Uh, There's been a proliferation, as we know, from the 2016 election of misinformation and outright propaganda. And because propaganda and misinformation is not uh, labeled as such, uh, people can be fed all kinds of extremist views and uh, can be misled into adopting positions that are very much not in their interest politically, socially, and otherwise. The flood of information has also been um, associated with uh, feelings of overwhelm, cognitive overwhelm, as well as just a sense of not being able to process what information should be acted on. It leads to market increases of apathy. But I'm not going to be talking about social media from a kind of uh, sociologist perspective. I'm going to be talking about it in the perspective of my training, which is uh, a background in psychology. That's really what I'm most interested in. What is the implications of social media use on the psyche. So first off, you don't have to be a follower of Marshall McLuhan, uh, who wrote that the media is the message, how we communicate, how we connect, how we get information determines or structures our uh, perceptions of the world, as well as uh, has implications on the personality. But uh, it's been noted by many uh, that shifts from one style of connection, information, sharing, communication to another has vast uh, influence on the way we process and our personal experience. For example, when we shifted from oral cultures to the printed word, probably, I, I, I don't know when the Gutenberg Press became uh, in effect, I'm going to guess I don't even have a clue, 15th century, maybe? Something like that. Um, But previously, in largely oral cultures, um, entertainment and information 
was a shared experience. Uh, everything you learned was given to you directly by another. There were no archives of human information or human memory. So everything that you needed to know, you had to carry around and be able to recall. And this uh, obligation to not only carry with you the story of your culture, your tribe, the, <coughs> the ways of living, your religious, spiritual beliefs, and also etc. would make it much less likely that you would have any room to record or, or carry in your mind your own personal story. So the emphasis upon individualization was far less. Um, again, because you needed to be able, there was no books or internet that you could look up uh, information. So you had to have it all stored up here. Um, and the fact that everything was provided in shared storytelling of parables and myths led to a kind of uh, welcoming of open-ended narratives and it meant that people had to get together collectively on a far greater basis. The printed culture had a huge impact on the way we uh, the way we uh, work with memory. It uh, made entertainment a private experience. It made information a private experience. You were no longer getting the history of your culture or religious or religious teachings or uh, even a lot of correspondence was coming to you in a form of writing. So you'd read someone's you know penmanship or it would be in a printed text. And this allowed you to offload so much of the memory in oral cultures you had to be able to walk around with. And so with the advent of the printed press, there was this massive emphasis in the humanities of individualization and human, the humans, the individual psyche, and um, this emphasis on individualization uh, led to a plethora of pathologies and diagnoses and so forth. Um, <coughs> then uh, there was mass media. And, the t and television, which of course introduced sound and moving, eventually moving images into the picture. Now with the printed word, when you were reading a, a book, you still had to use your imagination. You still had to be an active participant. But when mass media came around and suddenly sound or images or both were being broadcast to you, this changed your role. You no longer had to be an active participant. You no longer needed to use your imagination. You and I became what's called consumers. We were no longer an active you know, ingredient finishing the entertainment. We were now just <coughs> sitting back and having everything spoon-fed to us. And this led, of course, to an expectation that we no longer would need to use our imagination or be co-creators in art. And it led to a bifurcation. Sometimes we're um, active in our lives, working, but then we expected to go home and have our entertainment completely given to us without any efforts on our behalf. 
So this brings us up to date with social media, digital media, and I'm going to be talking largely about one, the apps like Facebook and uh, Twitter, Instagram, and I'm also going to be talking about texting. Um, digital tech completely expands the ability to offload memory to the point of the ridiculous. Now we can offload all of our images, record huge, uh, significant chunks of our life, and essentially have it archivable at the ready, sometimes just in our pockets on a smartphone. This leads to a diminishment of any need to uh, prioritize or to select or to have any sense of which memories are important. It leads to a fetishization. Even the most mundane people love to, I don't know why, I've never felt the need to do this, but people love to show us images of what they're eating for lunch. <coughs> uh, this kind of ability to archive even the most mundane experience leads to a certain trivialization of what we consider to be important in our lives. Uh, digital media also has the some of the qualities of oral cultures because every post is fleeting. If you look on Facebook, you go away for a minute, you come back, there's an entirely new set of posts, <coughs> each uh, more extreme than the other, each demanding our attention. So there's no sense of, unlike the printed word, which had a sense of uh, our iterations had a sort of concretization. Today, our posts and our texts and stuff have no feeling of solidity to them. They just sort of disappear into a digital ether. ether. I want to acknowledge some of the benefits because I don't want this to be just a bring down, right? I want to acknowledge that there are some benefits. People do report that if you are a member of a marginalized tribe, uh, being on Facebook uh, could create a sense of tribal membership. For example, suppose you grew up um, uh, uh, with same-sex attraction or uh, you identified with a different gender than what you were born with, um, and you were living in a community in, God forbid, rural Kansas. So this would be a very traumatizing uh, outcome, a very lonely outcome, unless you would have social media available where you could look up other people. And not only could you feel a sense of tribal membership and a sense of inclusiveness and belonging, but you might even find role models on social media. So it is important to note that. Now, some people might counter that, yes, this is why now there's been an explosion of anti-vaxxers and an explosion of flat earthers and an explosion of white nationalists and an explosion of Trump supporters or extreme <laughs> right wing people because pockets of people that would in the past have felt uh, discouraged from expressing their beliefs now have a forum of others they can connect to that have the same extremist beliefs. Still, I will accept that 
if it allows some people who have been beaten up by our, you know, sexist, misogynist, uh, transphobic culture to find other people to connect with. It's still overall a benefit. There are some implications that being having social media available can be a short-term, and I emphasize very short-term, relief for people who are experiencing monopolar depression, chronic experiences of mood uh, plummets and so forth, because getting a text or getting some notice can of course produce dopamine and make you feel better, hopefully enough that you can uh, bide your time and get professional help or get to someone. Um, so it does allow some access to resources. Still, given all the positives, the bulk of research points to a lot of negative outcomes uh, as a result of any regular use of social media. And I'm going to go over that now. In the past, up until probably uh, the last 20 years, the attention that a human being would receive in their life would be relatively stable. What that means is you would have a group of friends that, and family members and work colleagues, and if you had an emotionally resonant event in your life, you would know that there would be a group of people out there that you could connect with and get a reliable kind of uh, attention, regard from them. This <coughs> connection was not easy. You would have to pick up the phone, you would have to actually go to a place where friends would hang out, you'd ha actually have to seek someone's time and then you'd have to go through the vulnerable expression and disclosure of the event and have that person sit with you and listen but in that and we'll talk about this in that experience your emotional wounds would be processed the experience would be in uh, would be regulated you wouldn't be left with a festering emotional wound that wasn't in any way addressed. Today, because attention in the form, when it comes from social media is so much easier. It's so much easier to not do the difficult work of picking up the phone or seeking someone's attention. Uh, it's so much easier to simply go online and post something or send a text out and then hope that you'll get a, we'll hope that we'll get a response that people are tempted to try to mitigate emotional <clears throat> distress, loneliness, uh, despair, uh, fears, anxiety disorders, and so forth, to mitigate it not through one-on-one -on -one synchronous personal face-to-face -face communication. It's very tempting to do the easier, less vulnerable approach of seeking it by, you know, typing something into a phone or posting something on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook and just seek a sort of attention that way. Now this attention can be, of course, come from far and wide. And if you are clever in the way you post and word it perfectly or you know, have the just right image, you've 
curated. You might get so much more attention than the one person who would listen to you and, and spend time with you that it feels immediately, the dopamine at first feels really great. That sense that people really like me out there, that there's 41 people that you know, you know, put a heart, you know, and, uh, and 75 who put a thumbs up or whatever, uh, you know, or a smile. And that, that that somehow would relieve or alleviate my sense of loneliness. Uh, but for so many reasons, that form of attention is actually damaging. Here goes. One. In the past, the stable attention you would get from simply calling up a friend, finding someone who's available, or going to a place where your friends would hang out, or call up a family member, uh, even though you'd only connect with one person, uh, I'm gonna close this. Even though You'd only connect with one person. That would be a, an, a very powerful and effective experience. Today, you could post something and you might get uh, a whole lot of responses or you might get nothing. It's volatile. It's capricious. It's, there's, no, there's no sense of how much you know, response you get. If you send out a text to someone... Uh, unlike a phone call, you either they either pick up and they're there or they're not. A text goes out and there's no sense because it might be hours before you get a response. That not knowing contributes to a state called preoccupation. Preoccupation is synonymous with having your sympathetic nervous system activated and putting you in a mild state of hypervigilance. It makes it very difficult to focus attention. It makes it very difficult to think outside of the box or be creative when you send out a text saying, hey, can I talk, and you don't get a response, and you don't know if that means the person is unavailable or if they're busy or what. So it keeps you on a kind of emotional hold that can be very depleting. Um, the, but even more so than that, human beings are set up to regulate our emotions in person, direct, face to face. Now, why is this? Uh, this is not something I'm just pulling out of my ass, by the way. This has been so documented over and over again. If you want, you could read the work of Alan Shore. Affect Regulation, Volumes 1 and 2, it's 1,200 pages. I've pushed myself through 400 of them. I wouldn't recommend it to my worst enemy, but, but I can tell you that all the mountains of clinical evidence point in one direction, which is affect, regulating your emotions, keeping your nervous system in a homeostatic, bouncing back between your parasympathetic and your sympathetic, allowing your vagal break to slow down your heart rate, allowing you to engage in creative thinking and self-actualization requires your requires nonverbal face-to-face connection. The process that regulates our limbic structures happens not through language, not through typing, not through receiving a text, but when you see someone, their facial expression mirroring your 
feelings, when someone makes eye contact with you, when someone smiles when you've experienced something good or when they show a sense of sadness when you've experienced a hardship, your right hemisphere in the background of awareness, not consciously, this is a pre-conscious operation, notes that mutuality, that connectivity, that sense of partnership, that sense of membership in the human bond, and that experience, your right hemisphere, then has direct connections to your amygdala and it lowers it, the amount of fear, isolation, and it normalizes your experience. No text, no post, nothing that is asynchronous can ever do that, period. Human limbic co-regulation is a one-on-one -on -one experience. It can be done a little bit on the phone when you hear somebody's voice. It's far better to do it if you have to be mediated by um, technology to have it on FaceTime, Skype, etc., some video conference. But it requires synchronous, real-time, seeing that person's face having them see yours, having a sense of proximity. The exact same experience we needed as children to feel safe in the world and establish secure connections in childhood. We needed to be with the parent, to see that we were seen in their eyes, that our emotions were understood. We need that, as Bowlby said, the great attachment theories from cradle to grave. And that is a direct, real-time experience. In childhood, sporadic attention leads to all kinds of personality disorders. Borderline, narcissistic, antisocial, histrionic, obsessive-compulsive disorders. There's even a lot of uh, implications now that bipolar disorder has a, has a significant overlap with attachment disorders. So we need ongoing one-on-one -on -one direct communication. This is why uh, attempts to make uh, solitary confinement more humane by allowing people to have TVs in it and so forth have not mitigated the amount of psychosis that people experience. It's the most inhumane uh, punishment ever to put anyone in solitary and even if you put a TV in there it will not mitigate the psychosis and the breaks this the paranoia that will accrue very quickly sudden shifts in attention are psychologically destabilizing there was a great team of uh, uh, neuropsychologists Lieberman and Naomi Eisenberger and they did this wonderful, fun study where they created a computer game of catch. Sounds pretty boring, I'm sure it was. But what it would do, it was participants would play catch with two virtual uh, participants. So it'd be you and then two participants that were programmed by the machine. And in this game, they program the other two virtual participants to not throw the ball to you after a while. So you'd be <laughs> playing catch, and then suddenly, after about 10 minutes, five minutes, they would stop throwing you the ball. Well, 
the participants were wearing fMRI scanners, and when this would happen, even in this mild, completely uh, emotionally minimal experience of not having a ball thrown to you, people would experience psychological distress and their dorsal anterior cingulate cortex would light up because we as a species are attention-seeking missiles. And to have attention suddenly be taken away from us or to have it be fleeting or to have it be volatile is in our absolutely psychological worst um, interests. And that's exactly what the social media experience is in a nutshell. You do not know when you're going to get attention, how much, whether it'll be good or bad, positive and negative, etc. So it's essentially like playing that game nonstop. To wit, a study, and this study will give away the findings, they didn't really hide anything. The study was called Facebook Use Predicts the Decline of Subjective Well-Being in Young Adults. In other words, if you didn't get it from that, the conclusion of the research was the more people use Facebook, the worse they feel. So if you use it for one minute, you'll feel worse than if you didn't use it at all. And if you use it for five minutes, you probably will feel significantly worse than if you used it for one minute. Rather, here's the part of the conclusions, rather than enhancing our well-being, the interactive with as real-time interactive with friends do, interacting with Facebook predicts the opposite results. It undermines well-being. Uh, now, if that's not enough, I'm going to keep piling on the evidence, by the way. Uh, so you please stop. All right, I get it. Uh, Facebook has been linked with uh, the comparison factor. Uh, no matter how much we try, when we scroll through these feeds, uh, it's inevitable that people start to compare their lives with what the posts that they see. And in the study, seeing everyone else's highlight reels, how Facebook usage is linked to depressive symptoms, they found that whether you think that you're doing better than someone or worse, it doesn't matter. This experience emphasizes the difference you feel between your feelings and someone else's exterior. You're more likely, by the way, to feel a sense of failure. You're not doing enough because people generally tend to post bifurcated images of themselves constantly at parties or traveling to the Maldives or something like that. <laughs> they don't tend to post pictures of them sad, alone, you know, <laughs> after work, eating away their feelings over, you know, some carbs and just miserably, you know, <laughs> looking what's on Netflix. That's not what people post. They more likely are going to post something that emphasizes uh, the robustness of their life. And that can lead, of course, to feelings of, well, I'm doing something wrong because everybody else looks like they're surrounded by people and happy all the time. Um, There's also studies by the University of Missouri that shows that it leads to anhedonia. What's anhedonia? That's the inability after a while to experience pleasure. Pleasure is a dopaminergic experience. Now, why would 
using social media lead to a depletion of experiencing pleasure in life? Well, that's actually rather easy. Social media is just another form of dopamine boost, just like shopping, just like video games, just like um, uh, 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 gambling, just like even using cocaine. You look at somebody's brain while they are engaged in social media and there's a, a synaptic, Pre, higher synaptic presence of dopamine. Over time though, of social media use, your brain loses the ability to maintain dopamine, to regulate it, because it's so artificially being ramped up to levels it shouldn't be, that then little things in life that used to be pleasurable, like taking a walk in the park, uh, or um, experiencing a sunset, etc. are no longer pleasurable because we've been overstimulating the dopamine secretion by giving it something that essentially triggers it far easier. So little things that used to bring joy now fail to bring joy. Because it's dopaminergic, social media has been shown to meet all of the criteria of other addictive uh, behaviors. It diminishes our interpersonal experience. It leads to isolation. It leads to reduced stress tolerance, which means activities that we used to be able to withstand that were not exactly fun now feel really, really, really bad if we don't have social media or phone available. To wit, I, uh, you know, I was like uh, 35 before I even heard of the internet. And, in my 40s before a smartphone was even invented. So it doesn't bother me standing online at a bank for 10 minutes waiting to see a teller. But my God, I see people having many nervous breakdowns if they can't get a signal. And that probably means they have AT&T. But, like, but you know, if little bits of weights at a doctor's office, waiting to see a dentist, etc., when people no longer have connectivity, seem to, uh, anecdotally, seem to cause a significant degree of distress because in uh, people are used to having this degree of dopaminergic stimulation. So uh, there's a degree of dependence that builds. Certainly, it has been shown widely to lead to social anxiety because if you're at a party or at a social event, it, we all have fears of introducing ourselves to strangers. It activates some of our deepest fears stemming from early peer-to-peer -peer relationships. When in school, we would have to introduce ourselves to the mean kids and they would smirk and not like us and we'd feel rejected. We all have that memory of being new at school with the the food tray in the cafeteria, no one looking like they really particularly wanted us to sit next to them. Well, in adult life, going to a strange social situation can activate all of those fears. And if we have a phone able where we can text, it becomes so much easier to simply um, avoid the necessary skills of distress tolerance, learning to overcome our fear of uh, rejection or not being liked so that we can build social bonds. 
So what is healthy use of social media? Well, one, have a purpose. When I use Facebook, I tend to be, and maybe I could be accused of being uh, excessively precautious, but I tend to only go on when I have a legitimate purpose. I never just go on just to see what's there. I go on to post something that is related to Dharma punks, or I go on because I've heard something about a friend and I'm curious, so I go to them specifically. I definitely don't go to get uh, uh, information. Facebook. <laughs> 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 um, I care about my mind too much. Uh, I tend to, uh, I never, ever, ever, and I would so urge people, never, ever go on social media in the direct aftermath of an emotionally wounding experience. In the aftermath of an emotional wounding experience, you've had a friend do something that makes you feel abandoned, you feel left out of a group excursion, you feel not seen by a co-worker, whatever, pick up the phone, talk to another human being. If you cannot talk to another human being, write out the emotions longhand to help process them and then feel the affects in your body. Do what in uh, inside practice called a RAIN meditation. Recognize the emotions, allow it, investigate the feelings. Do some form of actual affect processing. Don't go on social media. It will only help you to compartmentalize or repress the experience. It will artificially raise your dopamine. It will make you feel for a short time powerful. And you will, during that time, not do the work of actually processing it. And so many uh, damaging effects set in over time. Of course, never compare one's life with other people's lives on Facebook. People are, again, not posting accurate reflections of their life. You don't, I don't, nobody does. You're just not seeing the times that they're lonely, frustrated, sad. Even if sometimes people do post something that says sad, most of the time you're gonna get an artificial experience. And anyway, comparing your internal experience with other people's externals, which after all, that's what images are, is never going to give you any sense of normalization. All it's going to do is exacerbate feelings of loneliness because it emphasizes difference, not similarity. Difference is exacerbated by not being able to connect by, with other people. Never, ever, ever look up an ex. <laughs> of course, there's this great quote by Dostoevsky, I believe, I'm pretty sure it was Dostoevsky I read, said that the, he was an inveterate gambler, and he said that the reason he gambled was not to experience the joys of winning, but actually to, secretly, there was this desire to experience losing everything, that gut punch of 
where one lost all of one's money, uh, everything. I suspect he found that to be the magnetic pull because it recreates a trauma from childhood of emotional abandonment, losing security in a family system, etc. So uh, I do think, I have come to believe in all the years of counseling people that stalking one's ex, which is uh, certainly a very common attribute in the anxious uh, attachment group, the stolen one's ex is secretly motivated by a desire to punish oneself, to experience the wound or the feeling of abandonment over again. So what Freud called a repetition compulsion. In other words, don't do it, okay? Trust me. Important is to practice mindfulness when we're engaging in social media. Well, what is that? Mindfulness is internal awareness of what's going on in our, our bodies, our nervous system, while we're using or engaged with something. Mindfulness means essentially, one, before we go online, before we text, just check. What's going on in, in my belly? Is my belly tight? Is my shoulders contracted and my chest tight? Are there any somatic symptoms of loneliness, sadness, uh, a sense of stress, discomfort? And if there is, do spend a little bit of time restoring your body and your emotional state to a neutral state before you go on. Because if you don't, you're going to essentially repress that experience and you're gonna set yourself up for even greater dysregulation in the event that nobody responds to what you do. It's far healthier to learn how to auto-regulate our emotions rather than to simply suppress and use uh, any social media as an attempt to skirt around. Two, while we're using social media, maintain a subtle awareness of what's going on internally. While we're using it, do we start to lean into the laptop? That's a sign that we are now in a hypervigilant state. Your body is telling you that you're no longer in a relaxed parasympathetic state. Is your breath long and relaxed or are you now emphasizing in-breaths? Again, that means you're now in a hypervigilant state. Just these little, these little checking in with how you feel internally can make such a huge difference in the quality and also mitigate really the long-term emotional damages of becoming reliant on social media and texting for communication. Don't ever say I don't give a prepared talk. I slave on these things. All right, so that's the sum. You got uh, all of, a download of all my thinking on social media. Now let's actually do a practice where we can learn how to develop mindfulness while we're engaged in any kind of online use. And I thank you for listening. So we're also going to learn to self-soothe in this meditation. So it doesn't... Try not to sit in what we consider to be a meditator's posture. Just close our eyes. 
and just allow your body to wobble left to right, front to back, just get a little like you're a top and then allow your body to balance itself and really what's going on here is your right brain is the only hemisphere that has awareness of both the left part of your body and the right. If you try to think your way into posture or balance, you'll be using your left and your left doesn't have an entire map of the, of the entire body. It only really is aware of your right hand, right leg. So you want to use your right brain. Your right brain doesn't think its way into anything. It just feels and uh, just take a little bit of effort and just lift your chin just a notch above what feels like a normal position for your head. And we're just putting this tiny little bit of effort to prevent our head from slouching in front of our chest. And that's all the effort we really need to uh, put in to this practice. Now we're going to systemically try to offload a lot of stress that we've been carrying around with us and also restore us to a nice homeostatic state. Yes, that sounds good. So a full in-breath through the nose and just nobody's looking. Squinch your face into an ugly pinched nose, furrowed brow tight little mouth, clenched jaw, just making the ugliest face. And then as you breathe out, long and slow out breath, soften the micro muscles around the eyes, unfurrow the brow. Don't know if unfurrow is a word, but we'll work with it. And uh, encourage the eyes to settle. <clears throat> Release any clenching in the jaw. And take the two corners of your mouth and imagine that you could pull them each a half an inch wider apart so that your mouth is very straight. It's not in a smile or a frown, it's just a nicely extended mouth. And then uh, we've just worked on the upper parasympathetic nerves. And now let's take another full in-breath through the nose and lift the shoulders up like we're trying to touch our ears. And then what we're gonna do is rotate the shoulders back and breathe out slowly through the mouth and drop the shoulders and drop the arms like you put down two heavy bags and there's no longer any feeling of lifting anything. Feel that sense of release and in the arms and the shoulders and your chest is open and we're engaging the vagal break which now slows down the heart rate, reduces the blood pressure, and sending a message to the limbic system saying we're safe. And that in turn is allowing us to 
reduce cortisol and allow our digestion to start functioning normally. And then for our third in-breath, breathing in and pulling out the belly to this bloated state of extension, like you're pulling in the breath by the belly. And then as we slowly breathe out through the mouth, soften the belly. And from this point on, if we can just practice some nice abdominal breathing, all we do is very slowly feel as if the breath is being pulled into the body by the belly, abdominal muscles releasing, and then feel the sense of, as you breathe out slowly, the sense of ease and softening the abdominal region. This is the absolute base of the dorsal vagal nervous system. And we carry so much of our fear in this area. So releasing, learning to soften and breathe abdominally can actually be such a valuable tool in regulating one's anxiety. Now that we've relaxed key areas in the body, try to Bring to mind an image of a place you really love to go to when you have an expanse of free time, say on a vacation. Series of days when you're off. And just as we do when we reach these sacred places in our life, we give ourselves permission to not do anything, not go anywhere, nothing to prepare, nothing to keep track of. Any plans of the future are disinteresting because we, this is our time to really arrive in life. Even rehashing unresolved issues of our lives is disinteresting, not appealing in any way. All we want to do in these times when we've reached a sacred moment where we can unwind, come to a complete stop in life, is we just want to stay present and drink in the experience. So try to just stay with this present awareness, aware of your breathing, aware of the sounds, aware of body sensations outside of the breath, aware of any shifting moods 
maybe sometimes you feel tired, maybe sometimes elated, maybe sometimes frustrated. Maybe you might experience a shift in feelings. The stomach might become suddenly tight or the throat might feel locked and tight or suddenly we might feel a state of ease. So all of these are perfectly valid objects or anchors for the mind. Anchors keep us from floating away into thoughts. The only thing we want to do when thoughts appear is just notice them, just say hello to them, and just allow them to be in the background. Sometimes a thought will be quite ambitious and grab hold of our attention and before we know it we'll be lost in reflection about it. some issue that's not present, it's not happening right now, and when that happens and you become aware of it, that's something to feel really, really good about. That very moment you become aware, you've wandered off, you've already started the journey back home to your body, to the present. So just feel this sense of appreciation of your endeavor whenever you find that, oops, I wandered away. That's actually means you're developing the tools to liberate yourself from repetitive obsessive thoughts.
So let's take a moment to just scan mindfully those the first, second, and third foundations. Buddha called foundations of mindfulness. So the first is just noticing how does your breath feel right now? Does the are you aware of both the in-breath and the out? Is the out-breath relaxed and long? Try not to interfere, just note what the breath is like. And then second foundation, feelings. Let's just take a notice, does your belly feel soft and pliant or does it feel tight carrying around some fear anxiety stress or does your chest feel hollow or constricted on the one hand suggesting feelings of disconnection loneliness or does your chest feel open and spacious feelings of being connected, being secure. Shoulders as well, do they feel relaxed or are they starting to exhibit signs of tension by being lifted up towards the ears? Cognitive overload. Does the face feel relaxed, blind, or is there feelings of sadness behind the eyes, or maybe joy, upturned corners in the mouth, sense of lightness. And the third foundation is just be aware of your levels of your quality of attention. Do you feel present? Do you feel distant? Does the mind feel bright and open and spacious, or does it feel dark, claustrophobic? Do you feel a lot of energy, or do you feel a sense of tiredness, exhaustion? There's no right or wrong answers. Every emotional state is accepted and part of the process. So those are the three foundations, the breath, the feelings, and the quality of awareness. So now imagine yourself in any situation where you might normally use either texting or social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, even a dating app. Imagine yourself in whatever scenario comes up in your mind. And again, before you imagine using, you're just sitting down to use one of these media. Imagine you're in that location and now see, check again, is there any subtle shift in the breath, the 
feelings in the front of your body, the stomach, chest, throat, face? Is there any sudden heightening of awareness? Does suddenly the mind seem brighter, more awake? Does it feel suddenly a sense of darting instability, a jumpy attention? What happens when we're about to use this media? And now finally, visualize turning on either the looking for a text, waiting for a text to come, looking at a news feed, expecting to see something to be of interest, looking at a dating app, expecting to see a message from an interested party, the normal seeking state that we're in when we use one of these forms. And then again, we would maintain mindfulness. What happens when we engage? Is there any change in the breath? the body, feelings, the mind's state of awareness. So lastly, visualize experiencing something that is disappointing. Maybe you've stumbled upon an image of an ex with a new partner. Or you've sent out a text a couple of hours ago and still haven't received a response. A post hasn't received any attention. And in this scenario, what we would want to do is imagine putting down the phone or the device and bringing our attention back to the body. Take a full in-breath, a long, slow out-breath. Breathing into the belly and softening the belly. If the shoulders have started to Clench upward or forward, pull them back, open up the chest, put the mouth back into that neutral position, and we would want to lean away from the device, not lean into it. 
Good. So in a moment, I'm going to ring the bell. And whenever you feel so inclined, slowly open your eyes, but try to do so in a way that is slow, incremental, and that you can bring awareness of your internal experience. Even we can practice mindfulness even when we're walking or talking. Buddha said we can engage it in any situation in our life. And all it means is just being aware of our internal experience as we move throughout our lives.